Well, good morning, Redeemer. Morning. morning. If you have a Bible, please open it to 2 Samuel 24, September 5th, 2020. September 5th, 2020. We began this sermon series that long ago, and now we finish it on sermon number 75. All right, here we go. So uh, thank you, Steve, for reading that for me so that I don't have to read the whole thing. <laughs> you took one for the team. I know, the, the, the priest there at the end that he buys the threshing floor from, that's a hard one. I worked on that one several times. But you had to say it, not me. So we are going to just go through the whole chapter here at the end, and then we will be done with Samuel, and next week we'll be moving on to Titus chapter 1. So before we begin, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you, Lord, for David and for his life and his ministry. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for your people, Israel. As we gather before you now as the new Israel, we pray that you would um, open your word to us, open our hearts and mind to you. Uh, we pray, God, that you would continue to do your work in us, Lord, that you would bring it to completion. We thank you for this glorious time to spend together. And I pray, God, that we would go from here, Lord, transformed and transfixed, Lord, um, looking to you in faith and hope and, and love. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your son. And amen. 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 So this last section here, chapter 24, is the final in the chiasm that, be, that began in chapter 21. It echoes the story of the famine that occurred because of Saul and his attack on the Gibeonites. Remember the prologue is itself a chiasm. The first story in that chiasm was the story of a king who acted wickedly, and so the people suffered. And so David restored the land and offered sacrifice to Yahweh and turned away the sins of a king. Now, in this story, we're going to have something very similar. The king will sin. Uh, it will, um, God's uh, punishment will fall upon the people, and David will turn away the wrath of God. Now, the difference is in, in this particular case, David is the king who both does the sinning and then seeks restoration from the Lord. And I think we can just begin right there. That's the difference, right? So Saul sinned, and David had to clean up Saul's mess. And if that's not enough, David also sins and has to clean up David's mess. And so what we see in David is the difference between him and Saul in this final story. But that's not the only thing. That's not the only similarity. That's not the only thread that began in 1 Samuel chapter 1. This final section, this last story, ties together and brings to uh, closure a bunch of themes that we've been looking at uh, ever since we began. Now, in both the chapter 21 and chapter 24, a curse is removed through sacrifice, and there is a clear parallel in the final clause of each story that ends this way. Lord responded to the plea for the land. Right? The Lord responded to the plea for the land. And I think that that is something we should think about, meditate upon, pray ourselves. The Lord God hears our cries. He responds to our cries. He responds to the plea for the land. The question is, are you pleading for the land? <laughs> I know you plea for your bank account. I know you plea for gasoline to put in the car. I know that we plea for our children. We plea for one, one another, and we plea on one another's behalf, all kinds of ways. But are we pleading for the land, or are we hoping that God simply dumps some sulfur on it? Um, <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I walk around the neighborhood here, around the church, and, and, and I learned this from 
the previous pastor dean and and what i do is i pray that these people would come to understand who live and work and, and walk here who the king actually is um, I, I don't pray that they come to right that god would be their lord i pray that they would come to understand that he's already the lord okay god god cares about this land because it's his and when people are mediators on behalf of the land, God will hear the plea for the land. He, he will. That's what both of the stories are about. And I think that summarizes First and Second Samuel. There's been a lot of pleading on behalf of Israel and the land against the Philistines, against all kinds of wicked and evil people, uh, Israelites that are wicked and evil. And what God has done throughout the entire story is respond to the plea of those who are uh, mediating on behalf of the land. In um, all the way in the very beginning, God responded to the plea of Hannah, if you recall. He um, responded to the Israelites who were plagued by the ark. They cried out to God, and he responded. He responded to the request for a king. He um, responded on behalf of David, both when he was in exile, both before and after becoming the official king. He has been responding to pleas since the beginning of the story. Now, the themes of deliverance and ideal kingship from the poetical center of the chiastic prologue, are also highlighted. Remember, there was a long psalm, and then the final words of David, and in both of those, we saw what the, what the ideal king is like, how he acts, how he responds, how he governs, how he behaves. And what we're going to see in this final story are all kinds of details in which David is doing exactly what was described in those poems. And, and why I love this story is because one of the, one of the things about David is that we, we tend to fault him when he ought not to be faulted, and we tend to make excuses for him when we ought not to make excuses. Now, the, in this story, he's actually not the bad guy. He's not the bad guy in, in chapter 24. People think he is, right? How dare he take a census? But, but we're going to see in this story, he's, he's actually an instrument in the hands of God, and he is a willing instrument in the hands of God. And this is a glorious chapter full of fantastic providences to, in which to conclude everything we've learned about him up till this point. David is a type of the ideal king, not a sinless king, but a king who, once he sees the evil of his actions, turns and becomes like the morning sun rising to bring health to the land, right? The son of righteousness has risen with healing in his wings. That is the Lord Jesus. And the type, right, the type that came before is David. He rises from his sin, bringing healing to the land. Now, chapter 24, excuse me, records the second great sin of David, immediately following a reminder of the first. If you look at the end of 23, verse 38, it says, Ira the Ithrite, Gerib the Ithrite, Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. And at the end of those stories where we're hearing all about the great men that surrounded David, they ended that list with, oh, Uriah, the one that he murdered. Because they don't want you to think too highly of David. And the scriptures want us to think highly of him, but not too highly. And you go right from that reference to that terrible story, and, and then you jump right into another story where, where the thing that's moving the plot along is actually David's sin. David's sin is what's, is what's bringing about what God ultimately wants for Israel. I'm going to say that again. It's David's sin that brings about what God ultimately wants for Israel. Now just think about that for a second. Think about what that actually means. David's life and ministry concludes in a unity of past and future. The place where Abraham offered Isaac as sacrifice is the location of the threshing floor. The threshing floor, where the angels will stop after he, is, he kills 70,000, that location, that threshing floor, is exactly where Isaac was offered by Abraham. 
That is Mount Moriah. That is what David will purchase. And that is the location later where his son Solomon will build the temple of the Lord. And so you can see, it doesn't say it, right? Nobody to- it doesn't tell us that in the text. You've got to figure this out. But it's, it's the beauty, right? It's the glory of God to conceal things and the wisdom of kings to find them out. The, the, the story ends with the, the story of David in 1 and 2 Samuel ends this way because it's a hinge upon which the door of Christ right, swings. This is where the past and the present meet. This is where Abraham offered his son, and, and this is where the temple that David's son, or this is the location where David's son will build the temple. Okay? Now, this whole um, story here in 2 Samuel 24, what we see is that David is an instrument in Yahweh's hands to shape the expectations of God's people. Okay? That is what he's being used as. He's not perfect. He is not perfect. But even in his sin, even when he's sinning or when he's doing righteously, always David is an instrument in the hands of his God. And, and, and what we need to understand for ourselves is are we likewise instruments in God's hands? Right? Whether we sin or whether we're acting righteously, no matter what, are we servants of the Lord? Are we instruments in his hands? Because sometimes we make too much of our sin, and sometimes we don't make nearly enough of it. Right? Sometimes we, 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 we are used to modern Calvinists. We have to repent of our good works. Uh, and I think that you should never do that. Okay? Never repent of doing something good. Um, don't also come over to my house and brag to me about it. Right? That's the other ditch. But we ought not to repent of our good works. When we're doing things well, we're glorifying God. And, and what we find out from David today is that even when we are not glorifying God, when we're not doing what we're supposed to, God is greater and bigger than us. He's greater and bigger than our sins. He's greater and bigger than anything that we think we're doing all by ourselves as this isolated little entity. We are instruments in God's hands. Now, are we willing instruments or unwilling instruments? I can go and find 10 people um, down there at Wendy's right now who are not at church, who are not believers, and I can show you 10 instruments in in God's hands. Now, they're not willing, though. (laughs) That's... The difference you're sitting here is because God has made you into willing instruments in his hands. Now let's jump into the text and let's look at how David, in, in, when he's doing well and when he's not doing well, is used by God to shape our expectations of exactly what this Messiah that we're all hoping for, what, what does that Messiah look like? What does he act like? What does he do? What are our expectations? Right? Genesis 3.15, Adam and Eve were promised a head-stomping Savior that will come and rectify all that Adam had broken. And here David is giving us example after example in 2 Samuel 24 of exactly what that head-stomping Savior is going to look like. So I'm not going to reread all of these verses. I'm going to simply read some of them, but I'll make sure that I tell you which ones. Okay? So 2 Samuel 24, I'm going to begin in verse 1, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to stop, but... It, it says, again, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of the Lord my king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commands of and the commanders of the army. And I'm going to jump down to verse nine. It says, and Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people of the king in 
uh, to the king. In Israel, there was 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. Now, I didn't go and, 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 and describe the exact path that Joab takes. I don't think it's important for us to understand. But God is, again, angry with Israel. I think that's very important. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of like, it's almost like a joke. Right? Oh, again. Right? Here we go. Yahweh is again upset with his people. And it's like something that just keeps happening to them over and over and over again. Right? It, and it doesn't even this time explain why. I mean, do we really need to know why? <laughs> no. I mean, but if you follow Israel, if you've been following them since the Exodus, what you find out is it doesn't take them very long, and they have stumbled all over themselves with complaining, with violating the law, with grumbling, with, with idolatry, with adultery, with all kinds of wickedness. Okay? What's not important is what they did this time. What's important is what God does about it. And what God does about it is that he incites David against them. So David, who is a man who makes free choices, is now going to be put into a position where God is going to use him as the paddle to spank Israel. And so this whole story is set up this way. Now, does that, does that make what David does okay? No. Oh, that's even harder. He is, he is not justified for what he's done. But we see that all along there was a plan. There was a premeditated plan by Yahweh to say, you know what, these people are not obeying me, and I need to spank my son again, and so what I'm going to use is use the paddle of David. And if you go all the way back all through this whole story, this is what God does. He, he'll use the Hittites to spank Israel. He'll, he'll use uh, the Philistines to spank Israel. And sometimes he'll use Israelites to spank Israelites. Now, I'm sure modern Christians, we don't know anything about this. Right? Never have we ever heard of other Christians being used to punish us. Or us ourselves being used to punish other Christians. And, and I think this, right, this, I'm going to, you know, th- th- these are deep theological waters. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm going to be talking now very philosophically about first and second causes. I'll go very quickly through that. We're talking about the fact that you are a free agent. And yet, as a free agent, everything was predetermined. And this is one of those moments where if, if all my Dutch theologian um, heroes were here, they'd be like, go very, ca- go very carefully now. Okay, the caution flag is out. Slow the car down. Okay, don't, don't try to lap people here. Go very carefully. These are deep waters. But it is very, it's encouraging to know that David is being used in this fashion. Right? Israel needs to be dealt with. And so, and, and so God is like, well, you know what, we'll make, we'll have David bumble it up. That's what we'll do. We'll have David stumble, and in his stumbling, we'll, we'll correct the problem that we're having with the whole nation. And, and that is extremely comforting to me, extremely comforting. Um, Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Okay, so there is, is Joe Biden sitting on his throne in the White House, and we're all, well, we're actually, we're not really so much afraid of him, are we? I got my, I got my people wrong there. Mostly we just laugh at him, right? But where, who, who's controlling his heart, right? We're, we're afraid of somebody like Putin, who's a real bad guy, right, a real bomb villain. What's, where's his, who's controlling his heart, right? We're, we're worried about what? What are we worried about? We're worried about... The guy who's in charge of China, well, who, who, whose hand does he rest in? And, and here, David is going to be doing some things, but everything that happens, everything that David does is in the hands of Yahweh. Everything he does is in the hands of Yahweh. He controls what direction David goes. Now, 
I'm setting all of this up because I'm going to drop a bomb at the moment. And, and if, you're, if you've been reading along with Chronicles, the same, right, this parallel to what we're reading about here in Samuel, it actually says something quite shocking in 1 Corinthians chapter 21, verse 1. It says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Well, hold the phone. Right? I don't understand. Is this a contradiction? In Samuel, it tells us that God incited David against Israel. And in Chronicles, it says Satan or incited David against Israel. Well, which is it? Which is it? And, 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 all, and all kinds of religious questions appear here, theological ones. Um, who's actually in charge? Who's actually doing the inciting? Now, what I want to do is turn to Job chapter 1. And I want to show you that this is actually not the first time that this has happened. Okay? Job is incited by who? Well, you could say Satan, but I actually would say it's Yahweh. Yahweh incites Job. And in Job chapter 1, verses 8 through 12, we read, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? <laughs> right? He's inciting Satan against Job. That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Now see, right there is something that we miss. Because Satan is going to go out and do these things to Job. But Satan is admitting that it's you who are doing it. He says, if you reach out and touch him, he will curse you to his face. But then everything that, that follows is Satan doing it. So which is it then? Why can't it be both? <laughs> well, because we can't explain that theologically. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I could introduce to you an entire sermon series of things that we actually cannot explain. Okay? And, and, and this is why the Christian faith is the Christian faith. That's why it is a religion. That is why it depends a great deal on what we believe, not necessarily what we completely comprehend with our minds. Now, going back to Job, okay, it says, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So here in 2 Samuel, back in 2 Samuel, God incites Satan who incites David. That's what we understand. Now, this reflects the understanding that Yahweh is the Lord of the whole cosmos, exercising dominion over all powers, all authorities, whether in heaven or on earth, as it says in Psalm 97, 9. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth, and you are exalted far above all gods. From his position of utmost strength, from his position overseeing everything that is and ever will be, the Lord apportions power to lesser beings to fulfill his purposes. Okay? He, he works through means. He works through agents. And this is one of those things where, you know, it gets dicey fast. Um, raise your hand if you think you have a free will. Yeah, I even would say that. All right. Now, we have, to, we have to clarify that, don't we? Because I've always wanted to fly. I've always wanted to fly. I have stood on the roof of my house as a child. I have stood on the roof of my house as an adult man. And I've willed and willed and willed myself to fly. But you know what I can't do is rewrite the laws of physics, right? There's no amount of my will that will out, 
that, that, that will um, put down physics. Now, I can pay somebody a lot of money and sit in a cylinder that uh, is then lifted off the ground by uh, controlled explosions to get me into the air to fly, but I can't just stand on my roof and fly. So clearly my will is bound in some regard. Okay, so we don't really have a free will. When we say free will, what, what we mean by that is there are all kinds of decisions that we can make freely. We, we decide to do this or we decide to do that. We decide to say this. We decide to say that. But it's not as if our, our will is completely free. It's ridiculous to think so. Now, how many of you think God's will is perfectly free? Okay. Now, is it, though? Because he can't actually do anything contrary to his nature. Now, even here, we're different than him. We can do things contrary to our nature. A fallen man can do something righteous. And a born-again man can do something unrighteous. But God actually is limited in what he can do. He's limited by his own character. Now, this might sound like the question, can God, is, God, is it possible for God to make a rock so heavy he can't lift it? Right? How powerful is he? Can he make a rock so big that even he can't pick it up? That's not what I'm asking. Okay? Now, C.S. Lewis said, uh, anybody can ask a, a question so stupid even God can't answer it. <laughs> which I consider the lifting rock thing to be, but it's important for us to understand our theological categories. God's will even isn't completely free. It is bound by his own wisdom. It is bound by his own character. It is bound by his nature. He can't do something contrary to it. Now, even here, right, he incites Satan against Job. He incites Satan against David. He, He does this kind of thing. So is he the author, therefore, of sin? No, we have to remember our scripture. We have to reconcile what these things really mean. And when we come to the point where we think we have it reconciled, what we're going to be left with is simply singing the doxology, I think, which is doing theology properly. But here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Oh, I'm sorry. I read the wrong thing. Okay, going back. So God from, uh, from on high controls everything, including including even evil powers. It says in 2 Thessalonians, he sends a strong delusion on people, right? And so a strong delusion comes upon them that they may believe what is false. Well, why would God want people to believe what is false? Habakkuk chapter 1, it says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans in bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth, seize the dwellings on their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. So you, you, you read these things. God is inciting people to believe things that are false. God is using the Chaldeans to chastise good and righteous people. But it says in James 1.13, Let no one say who, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So which is it then? Which is it? I mean, if God is the author of everything that exists, and I was tempted on Tuesday afternoon, who authored the temptation? Now, what is temptation? Okay, is the temp- is, if Jesus came and he was sinless, and there's all kinds of natural desires that he has to eat and drink and to have uh, fellowship with people and to have sexual relations, all those, these natural inclinations that he has, he never acted upon them in a sinful manner. But he, but he also was not tempted by all kinds of things that you and I are tempted by because we, have, we, we are fallen in Adam. There are certain temptations that only come to those people who are fallen in Adam. 
right? We read in Romans 1, homosexuality is the result of a bunch of other sins. It's a sin downstream. So you can't say that Jesus, who was tempted in every way that we were, experienced every very specific kind of temptation every individual ever has. That's not what that means. Okay, God is the author of everything that occurs. The world is full of temptation. That does not mean he's the one tempting us. Right? I don't need any help being tempted. Frankly, I love him to death. He, I don't need his assistance to be tempted. I, I will sit in a room by myself and be tempted t- up, down, left, and right to no end all by my lonesome, simply because I right, am struggling against the nature that I was given at birth. Um, this, this used to happen in my, uh, when you study medieval history with me, as I often did at, uh, at Providence, uh, we would go, we'd go through this book of this. I was like, okay, let, let's read this, this historical work here written by this theologian. And you read it, and he's talking about all the terrible temptations that he's, he, he's just like riddled with them. And then you find out later that he's actually a monk who lives in a cell all by himself, hasn't talked to anyone in three years, uh, hasn't seen a woman in five, and, and he's just riddled with all these temptations, and, and there's none of the means of being tempted or even anywhere near him. Okay? He hadn't seen, right? he's, he's not overeating, he's not overindulging, and yet he's, he's talking like a guy who's sitting there with access to the internet, uh, sitting at Old Country Buffet. Temptations exist in the world that doesn't mean that God is tempting us. But God is the one who is over all things. He is directing all things, even the Chaldeans, right? He's directing even those people who are confused in their own minds. He has a plan and a purpose for everything that he is doing, and and he is the author of everything. There's no way to escape it. But that does not mean that we then come to his feet and blame him for for the sins that we commit and the temptations that we experience, right? Because that's the problem of evil. Why, why? Why would he make it this way? I don't know. Why would he make it this way? <laughs> right? That's now my answer to the question. I'm going to go with the Jesus method. You ask me a hard question, I'm just going to ask it back. I don't know. Why would he? Right? Why would he make darkness in, in an otherwise good world? Why would he have thorns on rose bushes? Why would he do such a thing? Now, what we're dealing with here is first and second causes. I want you to imagine two lines running across the stage here. The lower line is God's will. He's decreed everything that exists. And the line above it is, is, is the free choices of every individual human being. So on, four, on you know, next Wednesday, you could go into Baskin and Robbins. You could walk up to the glass case. You could walk down one side and down the other side. And you will absolutely, without a doubt, freely choose whatever you choose. And at the same time, that choice was predetermined before time existed. Now, how, do the, how, how does this line connect to this line? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> I've, been, I've been saying it this way for years. I cannot explain it. I don't even want to try to explain it. But it, that's the reality. David is used by God, right? Does, does God know um, the kind of man David is? Is David someone who sins? Does, is God going to love his children so much that he's, always, he's even going to use the sins of David to, to love on them and to correct them and to instruct them and to discipline them and to sanctify them? Yes. Okay, there is nothing that happens outside of his control. That's what Jesus said on the night that he was betrayed. He said, listen, um, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you. And I'm praying for you, buddy. Right? It's that straightforward. He knows that he's going to be sifted. He, and he allows it to happen. Why? Because God is present with him in the sifting. 
Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, section 1, puts it this way. Of God's eternal decree, it says, God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass, yet as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but it's rather established. That second line in which you're all making free choices can only happen if there is a first cause, and that is God. Right? He is the, the unmoved mover. He is the one who set the thing in motion. He's the one organizing and governing everything. John 1.5, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness. Proverbs 16.33, the dice are thrown in the lap and every decision is from the Lord. Now, I want to, now <laughs> Solomon is thinking, what is the most random thing that I can think of? Now, I play a lot of board games with my kids. It doesn't get more random than throwing dice. And Solomon is trying, he's very wise. And he says, okay, listen, even when you cast dice, right? You're sitting there and you're playing Yahtzee with your wife and you're kicking the tar out of her, <laughs> say hypothetically. And every one of those dice rolls was predetermined by God. Right? Go ahead now. I'll, I'll let you guys have about 40 minutes and try to count every hair on your head. He knows every one of them. He knows every one of them. There is a heron uh, who had a, uh, a baby chick recently, and I've been watching the little thing. He was tiny, and then he, he got bigger, and he got bigger, and he's been eating a lot. I mean, he's really healthy. And I, and I saw him yesterday on the side of the path, and half of him was devoured. And I thought, oh, why, why would he do that? And it was an emotional moment about an animal. Look at me over here. I'm getting old. <laughs> and you think, why? Right? I, w- I wasn't here when this happened. Right? Who was the audience for this? Why, why would this occur? And then, and then I sit down and I open my Bible and it says, again, God is upset with Israel and so he incites David. And I say, okay, this, this is the same God. I, I can't explain why he does all of these things. I, I, I can hardly explain how he does any of these things. But what I can tell you is you live in a world where even the dark things are not dark to him. Even, even the, the casting of dice, is, even what you can consider to be completely random is not random. And that's what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes that every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens, that the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. Now, we see in 2 Samuel 24, God's divine appointment and man's free will working together to bring about God's purposes. And I think if you go back through all of 1 and 2 Samuel, that's what we've seen again and again and again. We see all of these free agents making determinations and deciding to do things. Nabal does things, and Saul does things, and Ishbosheth does things. And through it all, what we have is God directing the course towards what? Calvary. That's what all of this is about. It's about... Years later, the son of David coming, descending from heaven to stand amongst us and to take upon himself not only the sins that we're describing here that David commits, but every sin ever committed ever. And that's what this whole story is about. And you see how God 
making these decisions and humans making these decisions work together and how the story is woven, how the story is told. This is how the world was made. Adam was told in a very good world, as Yahweh called it, to guard the garden, right? Yahweh says, this is a good world. It's a very good world. And then he says to Adam, hey, guard it. Well, guard it from what? Guard it from what? In Matthew chapter 3, we see that Jesus was not uh, above all of this, right? All of these things. This is why Jesus came. He was tested, just like Adam was tested, just like David was incited, just like Job was incited. And what we see is that in Christ, he never fails the test. You couldn't incite him into sin. Satan could do what he could do. God is working through all of these different things, through weariness, through... um, Uh, through stupid people and their dumb questions. He's constantly being incited to sin. And what you see is that Jesus, unlike every other character that came before him, cannot be incited to do so. Matthew chapter 3. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased... Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Right? And, and did, how did he do? How did he do? Right? There he is standing in front of Pontius Pilate, and he can call down from heaven legions and upon legions of angels. He, he was incited Right? To take the easy way out. How did he do? He's there on the cross and they're mocking him and they're, they're, they're ridiculing him while he's, he's in utter pain. Right? He's completely reviled while he's there also suffering physically. And they said, ah, if you're the son of God, come down from there. And how quickly would we have gotten down? Frankly, we would have never ended up on the cross. <laughs> if we had been there, we'd be like, okay, now's the time. I waited till now. And now y'all are going to suffer. But no, he's incited and incited and incited, and nothing will overcome him. He, is, right, he has set his face to, toward the joy set before him, and he goes after it, and he will not be turned away. And it's through his not being incited to sin that God overcomes the world. Okay? But up till that point, all the other, right, even our sin that caused Jesus to be on the cross we think it, right, it's, it, and it is all vile and wicked and evil, but it's the thing holding Jesus up on the cross. It's the thing piercing into his soul. It's the thing separating him from the Father. And, and through all that wickedness, glory comes. And through all of that despair and suffering, glory comes. Now, the fact that the Lord oversees the entire judgment process should ultimately comfort us. No malicious action can occur that is not subject to God's oversight, divinely ordered boundaries. It also means that nothing can occur in the universe that God cannot use for his ultimate purposes, Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Therefore, the apostles prayed in Acts chapter 4, For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So so who killed Jesus on the cross? 
God had predestined Calvary, and we read the Gospels, and we see free agents making decisions, and this is a profound mystery. And in David's life, we see this reality come to life. And what is happening is for Israel's discipline. It's in Hebrews 12, Paul quotes and expounds upon Proverbs chapter 3, explaining that believers should expect discipline. The word is padeo. We should expect an education. We should expect that God will purify us and educate us and sanctify us and instruct us in the way of the Lord. So when things happen to us, right, temptations, difficulties, other sinners, when these things happen, how many Christians say, well, why me? I don't know. Why you? Right? You're not perfect, are you? You're not perfect. I, I know you. You're not perfect. Why you? Because God loves you. That's why. That person that you can't stand is the means of gaining all, all of the glorious patience that God wants you to have. <laughs> that unloving person that you're supposed to love anyway is the means for you to acquire all the love that you don't currently have. Now, no, I'm just kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Right? That's just the setup. That was verse 1. Don't worry, I'm not going to take that long on the other 24 verses. I want to move on now to what is the actual sin, because this part, I think, is also very confusing. What is David's big bad sin? You go from Uriah and the fact that he, he slept with this woman who's not his wife and then murders her husband, and then you're like, oh, yeah, and he took a census, too. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, U.S. government, are you paying attention? Right? His, his other great sin is taking a census which just seems hilarious to me on levels that I can hardly describe. I love God and his work because this is not a thing that, right? If I were writing this story, his sin would be like embezzling money or something, right? Oh, he fixed a horse race and then bet on it. That would be like how I would think about the next thing that he did that was really bad. Oh, he counted all the people in his, in his country. Oh, David, how dare you? I, now, a census is taken from time to time as necessary. As in Numbers chapter 1, verse 2 through 3, God actually says, take census. That's why the book is called Numbers. Hello. It's an accounting of how many people exist in Israel. Sometimes God says to do this. But this time, he didn't say to do this. He didn't command David and say, I want you to number the people of Israel. David, right? David, at this point in his, in his reign, decides to count all the people. Right? And we understand what's happening. There's a bigger story going on. But David is sitting there eating, right? eating his ro- roast chicken, eating his potatoes. I don't know. Do they eat potatoes? Whatever. He's eating his dinner. And he thinks, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to count all the people. <laughs> and so he goes to Job and he says, hey, Job, count all the people. And Job's like, whoa, 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 man. I'll murder some people for you. Right? I'll go out and I'll like, arrange some whacking somebody on your behalf. But I ain't counting nobody for you. And, and again, I'm reading the story, and I'm like, what? Right? Joab. Joab, this seems like a lower-level crime. Okay? This seems easier than some of the mess he's had you do in other portions of the story. But if, Joe, and, and, yeah, if somebody like Job doesn't want any part of what you're about to do, I would not do it. Right? We all know at this point, I think the whole story, there, there is a, some amount of humor built into this. Because we know exactly who Job is at this point. And Job's like, I ain't having it. I ain't having it. Now, the reason that David wants to count the people is because he, he now is, is considering his own prowess based on how many soldiers he has, 
right? He, he's, very victor- he's been very victorious. He has whooped everybody. And now he wants to show his might, right? Um, Samuel said that what the king will do is he'll have chariots and he'll have horses and he'll have soldiers and he'll have this whole um, array of people that go around and, and follow him that show his power and show his might. As I've said before, when the president of the United States shows up, the motorcade is huge, right? When, when, uh, um, when you go and you watch the North Koreans and they're doing one of their parades and everyone's goose-stepping and looking like fools, um, there's all those generals that have, have you seen the way they do it? It looks like uh, swag that they're wearing at, like, a restaurant. Like, they wear these medals that are huge, and they wear, like, a hundred of them on their thing, and they all stand there, you know, all together. And it, it, it looks impressive. It makes for good TV. And, and so David wants to know how many soldiers he has so he can brag about it. He wants to see his power, right? It's a, it's, it's a, a counting contest, a measuring contest, and he wants to win. And, and the, right, he... he, he Convinces all of the commanders to do it, which is, first off, hello. If, so nobody can talk down David. The only one that can stop David from doing this is David. Right? How powerful is David? How powerful in the kingdom of Israel is David if, if his commanders don't want him to do something and he wins? Later, when he wants to do other things, like take somebody's wife and murder him, we can see how easy it's going to be for him to do that because nobody can talk him down even from a census. If he can't govern himself, no one is going to be able to govern him. Gentlemen, if you can't govern yourself, no one else is going to be able to govern you. And our prisons are full of people who can't govern themselves. Right? And prisons always are. Now, he wants to show how awesome he is by counting the number of soldiers he has. And we find out, actually, wow, um, Yahweh was not kidding in Genesis 2, or 12, Chapter 12, verse 2, when he said, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. This is what Joab realized. Joab realized that if the numbers are big, if the nation is strong, if the nation is powerful, the reason is because Yahweh has made us so. And, and, and he doesn't want David taking the glory for himself. He's trying to get him not to do that. So the, the nation, it turns out, is rather large. There's 800,000 Israelites, 500,000 um, in, the, in the tribe of Judah, that's 1.3 million. So just to give you some context, uh, Napoleon marched into Moscow, um, Russia, with less than that. Okay? One of the largest armies ever seen on the continent of Europe followed Napoleon into Russia and his infamous failure to take Moscow, and there weren't even 1.3 million. There were merely a million. Now, in modern times, right, there were 1.2 million soldiers during World War II, in the first four weeks after D-Day, when we're invading the entire continent of Europe, only 850,000 men made it ashore, right? And that seems like a lot, because it is, right? And think of all the tra- tanks and trucks and gasoline and food and tents and all the stuff that they needed. And here David is with 1.3 million soldiers. And what we see, even as he is disobeying God, taking a census that God did not tell him to take, we see that God is actually fulfilling promises to Abraham that he would make them a great nation. Because if you have 1.3 million fighting men, you have about 5 to 6 million people in your, in your nation. If you, if, then if you count up wives, women, widows, children, 6 million people. That's how big Israel got. And this is that part where um, secularists hear these kinds of numbers and they think, no way that a kingdom like that existed in, in those times and we've never heard about it 
I'm like, well, you did hear about it from the, okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's just a little detail. You did actually hear about it. It says it right here. So it's a big army. It's a big army. All right, so immediately after this, what happens? Now, does it require a prophet to come to David and to tell him he sinned? No. He, he is cut to the heart. He still has a tender enough conscience to know that what he has done is something he ought not to have done. And, and this, the story, which is taken out of chronological order, is at a point in David's um, reign when he can still recognize his own actions as being out of, out of step with Yahweh. No one needs to tell him that he sinned. He knows it himself, which is awesome. It's fantastic. So he gets on his knees, and he confesses it to the Lord, and he calls it foolishness, which it is. And modern Christians are like, okay, and that's the end of the story, because God would, of course, forgive him, and that's it. But then there's these pesky things that happen in the Old Testament that we have a difficult time understanding, where God says, yes, I forgive you, and now I'm going to punish Israel. And you're like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean there's a, a physical discipline for sins that I've already confessed for? Right? Because I thought if I confess, that's the end of the story. Well, no, that's almost, well, that's never the end of the story. Okay? There's, that's never the end of the story. Because even sins that are confessed still end up on Christ on the cross. So no matter what, you have a, a real physical um, result of the sin. But there are other consequences that occur. And part of this whole story, David with Bathsheba, Saul with, and all of his things that he's done, Nabal, there's always consequences to the sin. Even if you're forgiven, there's a difference between being forgiven and being justified and going to heaven and, and being punished for sins. And, and in this case, God comes to David after he's confessed and says, okay, God is going to give you three options, right? Behind door number one, <laughs> what we have is this option. Behind door number two, here's an option. Behind door number three, here's an option. What do you pick? And you're like, what kind of Yahweh game show is this going on? David gets to choose his punishment. That would be nice. <laughs> if you committed sins that actually have, you're like, okay, well, I made really bad, foolish decisions. So uh, behind door one, do I lose my car? Behind door two, lose my job? Or behind door number three, lose everything? Well, I'll take losing my car, please. It would be nice if you had those kinds of options. David is special, and so he gets to choose his punishment. But if you notice the three things, none of them come upon David. All three things happen to Israel. Why? Because at the beginning of the story, the one that God was upset with was not David, but Israel. And so he uses David to get to Israel. And now he's going to discipline the people of God. And, and David prays a second time, and he says, don't, you know, don't, these, these sheep did nothing. These sheep did nothing. Let this happen to me. Let this happen to me. He wants to protect the sheep. He doesn't consider at this point his throne as a place of privilege, but as a place where he is supposed to, from, from there, protect and oversee the goodness of the land. He, he wants to take it upon himself. And God doesn't let him do that. God, because God has a purpose bigger than David and David's sin. Now, Psalm 40, verse 11 says, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. So in these three options, right, one of them was to be chased for three, for, for three months by the enemies of Israel. And, and what David decides is he would rather fall in the hands of God than to, into the hands of men. Now, that might seem, right, that might seem like, like the easy answer, but then you go on and see that Yahweh actually cuts down 70,000 Israelites 
And, and sometimes the grace of God hurts harder than hell, which is a concept that's very difficult for us to understand. God in his grace can be very, 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 very painful. But it's still greater. It's still greater than men. Right? What, what would you rather have? Would you rather go... Uh, to Auschwitz and fall into the hands of men, or would you rather be at the hands of a merciful God, even this God? And, and, and I think that it, it's, it, this story is a little bit difficult for us because we think we don't understand God's grace, and we think it's actually gracious if he does nothing to them, which that's actually not the case. What's gracious is he does something to them, but apparently what, this, what he does is, is less painful and, and less destructive than what others would have done to them. And, and you see this angel of the Lord, an angel of the Lord. Um, the Lord commanded, okay, let me see. When he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And so I thought what they had was a pestilence. I thought they had bacteria. Now, what, what caused the pestilence? If, if you actually got down there, right, if you opened some tents and you said, hey, Israel, come in here and let's test your skin and let's test you and let's find out what it is. Let's find out what's going on inside. Is there a biological answer for what's happening to them? Yes. But what does David see? An angel. Now, I think as modern materialistic Christians, we have a really difficult time for this because we don't think things like COVID, I mean pestilence, um, could be an angel of the Lord. Right? We, we disconnect what happens to us from the God in heaven who controls everything. He works and moves, right? There are no impersonal forces in the cosmos. And so David knows this pestilence is happening, and God allows him to see the principalities and powers of the air that are actually bringing about this pestilence. And that's very gracious, right? God is really allowing David to see more than most human beings are allowed to see. Most of us know on some vague level that there are principalities and powers of the air. Most of us do not get to see them. David actually gets to see the principality and power of the air that is doing this destructive thing to Israel. And he comes to the border of Jerusalem, and he is halted there. And oh my goodness, he just so happens to be standing above this threshing floor. Oh, and so, so the angel that's sifting Israel stops at a threshing floor where they sift wheat. I mean, who's writing this story? This is brilliant. Right? We, we think that all of these things are just details that are just, oh, look at this kawinky dink over here. It's amazing how that just happens to be. So not only is the angel sifting Israel stop at a threshing floor with a swift wheat, it actually happens to be the place where Abraham was going to offer Isaac. That's what we find. <laughs> and, and all of this, right, did someone have a bigger plan than merely even, right? The, what they, Yahweh was disciplining Israel for is not told to us. Because it doesn't matter as much as, as how he brings it about through David. Even that, we're kind of scratching our heads. We're like, all these theological categories. How does this even work out where David commits a sin, but it was really God's plan all along? Okay, so then the pestilence comes. Well, how did God know that he was going to pick that one? Okay, so then the angel gets there, and he stops on a threshing floor, and it's like, oh my gosh, that's so ironic. And then... Oh, it actually is also has to do with this ancient story of Israel about how God came down out of heaven and said, no, I believe you. You are justified before me, Abraham, and here is a ram that you can slaughter instead that, that you might save your son. And so this is the place that David 
comes to and, and wants to buy the threshing floor so he can set up an altar there. Okay, and then you have this exchange, because the whole end of the story is, is about this deal that they're trying to make, um, which also echo, echoes stories of Abraham. Abraham tried to buy land in which he could bury his dead, and he, he sat down and haggled with them, and it just sounds very much like that story. And because this guy just offers to give it to David. And David says, hey, I do not want to offer sacrifices that cost me nothing. Now, I just want to stop here for a moment. Because that's a very noble thing. David, David's like, listen, I'm not, I could take these things. I could take these things. Samuel told the people of Israel that the king will come and he will take. He said it eight times. He will take your young men. He will take your young ladies. He will take your crops. He will take everything that he wants. And David is a taker, right? He takes Uriah's life. He takes Bathsheba. He takes a survey. Again, a survey? Okay, he takes the census. He's a taker. But he's repented just now. And so this is where we see the difference between David and Saul. He understood his sin, he confessed it to God, and now he's not going to just keep taking. He's going to act differently than he's been acting. And he says, I'm not going to just take this land, because woe be it to me if I offer sacrifice that costs me nothing. Now the point that I want to make here is that the modern American church has no problem with offering sacrifice that costs them nothing. Because... David doesn't want to just be given these things. It costs something to buy an animal. It costs something to build an altar. It costs something to to procure the wood. But we have all kinds of modern Americans, Christians, who who don't understand, right? Right? Oh, well, the Old Testament's the Old Testament. It's different. Jesus is much more gracious now. It's not the same, right? And, And so what we have are all kinds of people who come to church with their hands out, right? You'll come to a building... You'll have all these people are playing music. There's all this bread. There's all this wine. There's electricity. Right? <laughs> Who pays for all this stuff? Right? How, how many people come here and, and offer the sacrifice of the Lord, the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ every Sunday like we're supposed to, worshiping Yahweh, and it costs you nothing? We're defined by this. Wait, worship that costs us nothing? That sounds awesome. Because we pick churches and we make decisions based on our own preferences. We don't like the music at a church. We don't like the carpet on the floor. We don't like the paint on the walls. Right? We live in this transient age where we, there's no ownership. And there's no ownership even for people, some people, who go to a church for years and years and years and participate in the worship that costs them nothing. And, and so, you know, we'll, we'll look at David and be like, well, you know, I am, I am way better than David. I'm way better than David. I've never murdered anybody so that I could hide the fact that I slept with his wife. Right? I, I didn't raise, I mean, look at the way David raised these kids. My goodness, what's wrong with him, right? And some of you moms are like, you know, I know where he went wrong. I know where he went wrong. But then you'll come in here and you'll sit and you'll participate with your handout offering nothing. And, and, and it's the labor and cost of a whole bunch of other people. Now, I understand there's differences of opinion about tithing. This is one of those times where I get to jump up and down on this particular topic and then move very quickly beyond it. Right? There's, there's different views. And, and people will think, well, you know what? I mean, you know, labor. Isn't labor tithing? No. Offering, right? If you're actually standing there and you're doing the work, you got in a car, you drove here, there's all kinds of labor involved in worship. But that's not what tithing is. That's not what he's doing here. He's not like, hey, how about I rake your backyard, dude, and then at the end I'll get your threshing floor. How about I thresh out some wheat for you first? 
No, the, the reality is David wants to, he wants it to cost him something. He wants to have the apparatus to be able to come here and worship Yahweh, and he doesn't want it to be free for him. He wants it to cost him something. Now, we understand that David owns everything, right? This happens all the time in my house. My kids will talk about something they own, and I'll be like, listen, let me just remind everyone, everything in this house is mine. You're welcome for, letting you, for my allowing you to use it. <laughs> and when I do this, it's supposed to be funny. It's a joke that we play in my house where I'm like, hey, everybody's borrowing my stuff. Stop it, all right? And I, and I go over there and I act like some toy is mine. And, and so technically, does, does King David, can anyone stop him, right? He wanted to take a census. No one could stop him. Could he take this thing? He could take it. But it's important to him, right? There, there's like lines he won't cross. And the line he won't cross is just taking the things that he needs to worship the Lord without having it cost him something. And I think that couldn't be more different from modern Christians. Now, he pays 50 shekels, he gets the threshing floor, and and he offers sacrifice on the third day, and and the pestilence is turned away, right? The people are restored. The land is healed. He goes on behalf of Israel, he offers the sacrifice, and this is how the story of David ends, and this couldn't be more fitting. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. And that's how the authors of this book want us to remember him. Now, you go on to 1 Kings. It has its own structure. It has its own point, And the story takes up David towards the end of his life. But, but 1 and 2 Samuel is the life of David. And in the life of David, the last thing Yahweh wants us to see going on is him on behalf of the people turning away the plague, turning away the curse, turning away the wrath of God by offering sacrifice that cost him something. At the very location that Abraham offered Isaac and that later his son will build the temple. That is who David is. That's why it matters to us, right? Because is he perfect? No. Is he sinless? No. Are there lots of things that we could say that he shouldn't have done? Yes. But we see at the conclusion of the story that his life was always in the hands of his king, his God, his father, his beloved Yahweh. And and, and no matter what, right? Unlike Saul, he always dealt with God. He didn't always obey God, but he always dealt with God. Saul would go so far as to hire a witch to talk to Samuel on his behalf. He did not want to deal with Yahweh. What you see in the life of David is that though he doesn't always obey him, he always deals with him. He always goes to him. He always confesses to him. He always listens, right? When the prophets come, he doesn't just say, oh, hmm, Nathan, that's an, an interesting point of view. Oh, Gad, wow, three doors. How about the fourth door? I'm not going to do any of those. No, he's like... He's constantly confronted with Yahweh, and he constantly deals with him. And that is the thing that we need to learn, right? Because God will do all, there's pestilence that comes. There's difficult circumstances that comes. You're incited in all kinds of ways. There's all kinds of Philistines out there. It's expensive to go and offer worship sometimes. It costs you something to be in a community. Your kids are costly. Your spouse is costly. There's all kinds of things going on. And my question is, are you dealing with Yahweh? Are you dealing with God? 
You may not always be obeying him. We know that you're not always obeying him. Fine. But then are you, but are you always dealing with him? Right? When, when you hear his word preached and you're pricked in the heart and you hear things you don't understand, you hear things that are convicting, you hear things that are difficult to hear, you hear things where you're like, I got to check Google because I'm not so sure Mike's right about that. Are you dealing with the things that are said? Right? When you, when you have somebody and you're like, you know what, finally we're going to do some hospitality. We're going to do it. And you got the people sitting there and then the guy says something that he ought not to say. Well, there's Yahweh. Are you dealing with him? Right? This, this is a person in your home who is in Christ just like you are, who's united to you just like you're united to God, and he has sinned in your home, and are you dealing with it? There are people in this church who are in need. Are you, are you going on their behalf and dealing with God on their behalf? Because what I have found, right, what I found in my own heart through this whole thing is that David is a character that I have a difficult time respecting at times. Right? I mean, you look at him and you're like, man, come on. But I would like to read the book of 1 and 2 Michael. Right? What would that? Oh, man. No, no, no. That's fine. I'll go with this. This is better. This is way better. Forget I said anything. Right? We like to read Corinthians and we say, oh, look at those guys in Corinth. But would we read First America or Second America or Third America? Right? When, when God sets down, we sit down and we read here what's written here. Right? We hear the songs as they're sung. We go to discipleship class. We, right? We're reading books written by ministers and pastors and theologians. We're dealing with circumstances in our lives. Are we dealing with the one who sent all of these things into our lives? Are we dealing with Yahweh? Because David deals with Yahweh. And, and you, there's tons to be said about what he shouldn't have done. Fine. But he dealt with his God. He loved his God. He sought his God. He was always a willing instrument in his hands to do what needed to be done to glorify Yahweh. And, and we did this series so that we would know, right? Because America desperately needs people who are dealing with Yahweh. Right? We don't need more conservatives fighting for family values from the 50s. We need people who are willing to deal with Yahweh. To go to him and say, listen, what, help me understand what's going on here. Why is this person suffering? Can you do something for them? Can you remember this covenant that you've made? This person that is suffering, this person who needs healing, this glorious thing that's happened over here, this difficult person at work that I have no more patience for, can I get some, please? That is what we need to do. If if we're going to learn anything from these books, it's that the household of God, right? It started with a woman praying for a baby, praying for a household. Right? Very soon the ark goes away, the tabernacle goes away, the house of Yahweh goes away, and the book ends with David purchasing the land where the temple will be built. And you see in it that as, as God builds our household, we are building his household. As we build our home households, he's building his household. Okay? And it's this reciprocal thing. And so stop ignoring him. Stop ignoring him. You're not better than David because David dealt with him. So go forth from here. And in all of the the circumstances that you're dealing with that you know the details of, go and see, are you dealing with Yahweh there? Are you dealing with the triune God? Are you dealing with the Lord Jesus Christ? And he may be doing difficult things. He may be saying difficult things. He might be calling you to difficult things. But you've got to deal with him, and you cannot ignore him. And as we deal with him, then we're actually fighting the cultural war. Then we are making a difference. Then we are living a life worthy of the one who calls us his children. 
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, we thank you so much for David. We thank you for his humility. We thank you, Lord, for his confession. We thank you, Lord, that he always dealt with you, Lord, that he always sought you, that he was always a willing instrument in your hands. I pray for all of us that we would go from here and that we would, Lord, um, look you in the face, Lord, that we would open your word, that we would open our hearts, that we would open our minds, that we would consider the circumstances of our lives, and that we would, Lord, not look away, but to confront you and to glorify you, Lord, and to speak to you and to hear from you as a people. In Jesus' name we pray, and amen.